0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. This Lent series that we've been working our way through, we've just been journeying with Jesus through the different days of Holy Week that lead up to his crucifixion. One of the things that we said is we need to make sure we allow Jesus to speak for himself and reveal to us who he is, that we don't just ascribe to him characteristics or things that we like or things that maybe we've heard from someone else. We ought to let him speak for himself. Because if we don't see Jesus correctly, then we won't seek Jesus correctly. If we don't see him for who he truly is, we won't seek him in the ways that that we should, in the ways that we ought. We won't worship him as we truly should. Today, I want to preach around the topic of Jesus treasured and betrayed. Jesus treasured and betrayed. As we look at this Holy Wednesday, as the hours are drawing near to the time when Christ will be, would be crucified, we just a couple short days before that time. We're going to look at specifically the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and ask the question, what led Judas actually to betray Jesus? Judas had walked with Jesus for these years. He knew him well. Why would he betray Jesus? And it all comes down to the way that he saw him. Now in Mark chapter 14, we'll get to Judas in verse 10, but I want to get us started in in verse 3. We have a little work to do before we get to Judas that we might better understand and have context for what Mark is pointing out about Judas here in Mark chapter 14. Let's get it started at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, Jesus is at Bethany a couple of days again before he is taken away to be crucified and he's having a similar interaction as he had a few days before if you remember when we looked at the Saturday prior she scolded even though she's the one in the right she pours out this very costly ointment on him she shows that he's more valuable than money than possessions she shows that he is her treasure and she gets scolded by the men. And for the record, just maybe to help you as you're working your way through, your, through the Gospels, maybe in your own time at some point, this is a very common occurrence when men and women are there around Jesus. Generally, when the men and the women are seeing Jesus differently, if you work your way through the scriptures, the women are the ones that see him correctly and often are rebuked by the men until Jesus rebukes the men. This is a very common occurrence in the Gospels. And we see here that this is the case, that the men are in the wrong. They are scolding this woman who is offering something very costly to him. She is treasuring Jesus. And it's not just that the men scolded her, but there's a little more. And now we look into Judas and his interactions here in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought an opportunity to betray him. The woman uses her valuable possessions as a means of worshiping Judas. Judas uses Jesus as a means of getting money. She treasures him. Judas betrays him. Whether we betray him or treasure him all comes down to how we see him and how we view money. I've been saying throughout this series that we need to look at the scriptures if we're going to view him as we're supposed to. It's it's essential that we continue to seek to renew our minds about who Christ is, about his character, about his attributes. If we're going to view him correctly, that we might treasure him instead of betraying him. The woman here, she is worshiping Jesus as Lord. Judas, he worships another Lord. This passage in Mark 14 isn't the only time that we see this happening in Holy Week. We saw evidence of this in our first week of the series back in John chapter 12. I'll just go through verses 3 through 6 briefly. It says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nart. So this is very similar to what the woman does here in Mark chapter 14. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, this is the same thing that the men said there in Mark chapter 14, but this is what's actually going on in Judas's heart. Verse 6, he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Very similar instance, but we see here that Judas didn't actually care about the poor. He didn't actually care about others. He just wanted money, and he was a thief, and he had access to the money that the disciples would use. Judas didn't care about Jesus. He wanted money, and his longing for money led him to betray Jesus. It led him to hate Jesus. Judas didn't worship Jesus as Lord because, again, he had a different Lord. He didn't see Jesus as his master because he had a different master. Jesus very clearly explains Judas's position when he's talking to the crowds here at Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. This is in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Look at what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the others. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus does this very often. He's very quick to draw the line in the sand. Either you love him or you don't. Either you worship him or you do not. Either you serve him or you serve money. You can't serve both. Jesus speaks as if there's not enough room in one's heart to both have love for him and love for money at the same time. Jesus' love for money caused him to hate and despise Jesus. Jesus. He's saying that the love of money robs us of the ability to truly love God as we should. The reason we often substitute money for God is because we believe that money actually gives us the things that only God can. I'll try to give two examples. I'll use 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Look at how the Apostle Paul describes God and what God gives to us. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort to you. God gives us comfort in ways that no one else can. The comfort that God gives us isn't based on circumstances, isn't based on our situation, because the point that Paul is making here is that we could even find comfort in our God, even in times of affliction, even in times of suffering and persecution. He goes on to make the point that not only can we find comfort in times of affliction and persecution, but he's saying we can have so much comfort in our God in those times that we'll have enough from God to share with others who are in need of comfort as well. He's saying that we can have an abundance of comfort from the God of all comfort if we know him. But money pretends to be God. Money is a master that promises to the ability to bring us all comfort. You know what would make you feel good. It's like money tells us, you know what would make you feel good, buying that thing over there that you see. That will ultimately bring you comfort. I want to bring up something that I call comfort shopping. Some people call it retail therapy. Y'all know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Retail therapy. Now, there's nothing wrong with buying nice things. I'm not trying to say that. But it, it is idolatry when we seek to use money to bring us comfort more than we seek the God of all comfort for our comfort. Maybe you don't do retail therapy, maybe you don't get this this rush from shopping, but maybe you just have this feeling that that I just need to have this thing, even though it's actually not a need, it's a want. I was talking to someone one time who was telling me that they were broke and that they were really struggling financially, and I found out that they were still paying off an $800 phone. You're not broke because you don't have money, you're broke by choice. Or maybe a more accurate way to say that is they were broke because of their worship. That their worship and love of money actually led them to pay more for something that they didn't even need. And it led them to be in a very difficult financial situation. They were in that financial situation because they looked to money to give them things that only God could give them. See, we were all created to find comfort in God. And those that love God will seek God for comfort, and those that love money will seek the comfort that money promises to give us. We seek money for comfort. But not only do we seek money for comfort, we also seek money for protection. Let's look at how God is described in Psalm 46, verses 1 through 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Describes God as an ever-present help in trouble. God is our ultimate protection. This psalm is saying that even if you see the mountains begin to move, we don't need to fear because we have God. He is our refuge. He is our present help in times of trouble. But oftentimes, if the bank account isn't looking right, we feel unsafe. We feel like we're not secure. We look to money to be our protection, to be our refuge, to be our security. When the bank account is looking better, we feel safe. When the bank account is looking lower, then we are feeling anxious. We're feeling worried. We aren't trusting God because we put our trust in money, and money has become our master. And there's nothing wrong with saving money. It's actually very wise. But if you can't trust God when the bank account is low, I have to let you know you weren't trusting God, even though you felt better when the bank account was looking right. Your trust was always in money. Money was your master that you follow, that we follow. I was hearing from a friend of mine about a counseling session that he and his wife-to-be at the time were having with one of the pastors at our downtown church. And he, I believe, was more of a a spender, and his his wife-to-be at the time was more of a saver. And the pastor ended up telling them, you both actually love money. You love to spend money, and you love to save money, but you both love money. You both love money. I believe it's often harder to see that loving money is an issue when there's someone who prefers to save money because they look to it for safety and security. Because the practice of saving money is such a wise thing to do. It's so necessary. And so we can easily justify not trusting God to be our provider by just saying that we're saving our money by just, and we're just practicing wisdom. Wisdom. Oftentimes, people who look to money for comfort buy a lot of things to help them help make their lives more comfortable. And oftentimes, those who look for money for protection save a lot of money so that they'll feel safe. Both are done oftentimes because we love money more than we love God. And Jesus's point is that the love of money actually leads us to despise Him, to hate Him. He says, "That's why many of us fight against God when He calls us to generosity." generosity to the needy, generosity to our brothers and sisters in the faith, generosity to the mission of God, whether we are controlled by a desire to save money or controlled by a desire to spend money, either way, we are fighting against God. We are despising God and his commands and his ways and what he calls us to. I want to try to explain this a little more by showing us this picture in Acts chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. This is a beautiful picture of what the early church looked like. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. They went and sold their possessions that others might have their needs met. Now my point here today is not that all of us should should sell everything that we have, but I am saying that we ought to hold every possession that we have with an open hand, remembering that it actually belongs to God and it does not belong to us, seeking God to direct us on what we should do with our money. God calls us to be an extremely generous group of people that he uses to spread his love through our generosity. And as long as we love money, we'll despise God for continuing to call us to be generous and selfless, With our money. The woman that was there that day in the book of Mark, chapter 14, she wasn't shackled by her love for money. She was free. She was free and able to give generously and use her money as a means of worshiping God. Judas was not so. And Judas's proximity with Jesus revealed where his heart truly was. Our, our relationship with money will, will reveal to us how we truly feel about God, whether we love him or despise him. Your relationship with money always reveals what you truly believe. Judas was so close to Jesus and yet he's being led by his true Lord, his true master in a way that was drastically inconsistent with the way he should have been living. Money enslaves. Money enslaves us and you can see it pretty clearly oftentimes. I know of people that would say With 100% confidence, and I believe they truly mean this: that hey, I think our church, whether they're talking about our church or another church that they're a part of, I think our church should be doing this. I think our, our our church should be helping people out who are in need in this way, and yet can't 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 untie themselves from their money enough to be generous towards the church, so that the church will be able to consistently do the very things that they're saying they want the church to do, because they're enslaved. They're enslaved. They serve money. Money masters them. So even though they want the church to do all of these great things, they are unwilling to consistently give to the church that the church might be able to do the things that they desire to see happen. They are shackled by the love of money. They have a level of desire to see those things happen, but they're enslaved by their love. They can't invest in the things of God that they want to invest in And they despise Jesus for calling them to change. And you better be careful because if you challenge them in this area, they'll despise you too. Don't take it personally. They're just following their master. We need to be honest with ourselves. We're oftentimes more like Judas than we care to admit. If you want to see a church that is not faithfully being all that God called the church to be, fill it with people that love money people that won't stick to proper money management because deep down they don't want to restrict their spending so they can't maximize their ability to give to others who are in need. Or maybe people that have a pattern of quickly purchasing the next new thing that comes out, but they don't have a consistent pattern of generously giving towards the mission of God. You might have the love of money in your heart, if the vast majority of your dreams and your ambitions and your goals are all about you amassing money that you can use for yourself. You might have the love of money in your heart if when you first heard about the stimulus check, which first of all, I am here for, let me just say that. (laughs) If when you first heard about the stimulus checks that the government is to be sending out, your first, your primary, and your only thoughts are about things that you want that you don't even need instead of considering how that might be used for those who are actually in need. It's good, it's wise to save, but if we're honest, I believe most of us are still buying things that we don't need in this time as well while not considering helping to meet the needs of others who are in need at this time. We need to wrestle with what James says in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In this time of need for so many, let us not be those that are quick to say, go in peace, be warm and well fed to a sister or a brother who is in need. Especially not if we're continuing to stock up on things that we desire for our own comfort. But it's not just that loving money robs us of generosity and keeps us from doing good. The love of money also causes so much evil in this world. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where he writes, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and and pierced themselves with many pangs. He says that the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evils. Of evils. And as we read in Mark chapter 14, the greatest evil of all time, the pinnacle of human sin and wickedness, when God was killed by those he created, was set up because a man loved money. The creation betrayed the creator because of the love of money. The love of money leads us to all kinds of evils, slavery, even chattel slavery in this land, even human trafficking, which still continues on even in our city today, is rooted in the love of money. It's difficult to think of of a single act of evil that people wouldn't do because of the love of money. You want to see someone get sinfully angry? Keep putting off giving them the money you owe them. You want to see a family get ripped apart? Have two people in this family disagree about some type of money, financial transaction between the two of them, and then have other people in the family pick sides on which one they choose if you want to see a family get ripped apart. If you want to see people walk in unforgiveness, have someone do something to them that causes them to miss out on a certain amount of money. If you want to see someone become jealous, put them in close proximity with someone that enjoys the luxuries in life that they've always dreamed of. If you want to see someone lie, provide them with a situation where a lie that no one else will ever find out will help them to gain a little bit of money. Money is at the root of all kinds of evils. And Jesus said that when we love money, it becomes our master. That we serve We are enslaved to our love of money. It's not just that we like money, it's that we serve money. We are so much like Judas, even though it's easy to look down on him. Let's be real, we trade Jesus in for money all the time because we love money. Judas was just a man who loved and served money just like us. We think our money is serving us, but we're actually often serving it. We think we're controlling our money and using it for our good, but it's actually controlling controlling us and leading us to our own destruction. KB said something along the lines of, you're in competition of having dust because all of this will pass away, but Jesus will not. Referring to those who give their lives to chasing money. You're in a competition of having dust because it will only pass away. And we'll go wherever our master goes. If our master is Jesus, we'll follow him in this life and we'll go on to the new heavens and the new earth to be with him. But if if money is what we truly serve and money is what we'll truly follow, then we won't make it to the new heavens and the new earth because we will also be following our money that won't make it there either. But there is good news in the narrative of the Bible For anyone that's ever loved money and anyone who's ever been enslaved to it. And one of the biggest themes in the Bible is this that God loves to set his people free from captivity, God loves to set the captives free. You can see this in the book of Exodus. You can see God as he moves to set his people free who are enslaved to Pharaoh, and they're forced to worship these false gods. And it says that God hears their cries, and he comes in with a mighty hand, and he frees them from slavery and crushes their enemies with his power and his presence because God loves to set the captives free. You can also see this in the book of Judges. Where God's people, because of their sin, because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, they find themselves oppressed by their enemies over and over and over again. And then they cry out to God and God comes in with his power and showing that his presence is still with them. And he sets them free by raising up a judge to save his people because God loves to set the captives free. You can see the same thing in the book of Ezra when God's people have been exiled from their land because of all of their idolatry as they were captured and taken away from Jerusalem. And then God, he moves upon the heart of the emperor, the Persian empire at the time, and he he allows the people of God to go back to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple and rebuild the city because our God loves to set the captives free. And it gets even better when we get to the New Testament because Jesus comes in and he lets everybody know that all who sin are enslaved to sin. But he also says, but if the sun sets you, you free that you will be free indeed. And we see what the apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 verse 17 and 18 very quickly. He says, "But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed." And having been set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. Why? Because God loves to set the captives free. And now we are free to serve a new master that is good and that is always for our good. And here's here's the thing about the story of Judas that I don't want us to miss. That God used a man who was enslaved to sin, a man who loved money, in the plot to crucify Jesus. And in doing so, he set free people who love money and who are enslaved to sin. That in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite power, he used the love of money to free people like me and you from the love of money. That he used slavery to sin to set people like you and me free from slavery to sin. And I'm going to show you how His dying on the cross, how he sets us free. How does the cross set us free from being mastered by money? Number one, God on the cross proved that he's the God of all comfort. That on the cross, he proved that he is the God of all comfort, that he provides us a comfort that money could never provide us through his death on the cross. He offers us an endless fountain of grace and mercy and righteousness and loving kindness that we can drink from and find comfort in no matter what situation you may find yourself in. So we don't have to look at our our circumstances, at our situation. We don't have to look to money, which is up and down, which is sometimes here today and gone tomorrow. And we can find comfort for our souls no matter the tribulation, no matter the difficulty that we find ourselves in. And then he takes us from there to the next life where we will know comfort like we have never even thought of in our wildest of dreams. Because he will provide comfort for our souls forever. The cross shows us that his comfort is better than anything that money can give us. And the second way the cross shows us that Jesus is better than money is that he proved that he is our true provider. As many of us are sensing right now in turbulent times, the money we rely on can be very fleeting. You need a protection that is eternal, eternal. You need a protector that will provide for your needs in this life that you can trust even on your worst days. Because here's what I know to be true when we see the cross of Jesus Christ. That if he did not abandon us and abandon our needs on his worst day, he sure isn't going to abandon us and abandon us in our time of needs on our worst day because he stayed on the cross and died for us. That is who you trust and that is who we find our comfort and our security and our protection in. The one who died for us. So to pursue this freedom from slavery to money, let's cry out to our God in the same way that they did in Exodus. Let's cry out to God in the same way that the people of God did in in the book of Judges and know that he comes and he extends his presence to us and he extends his power to us just like he did his people in that day. So let us seek God. If you notice in your heart this love for money, let us seek God, understanding just as the woman did in Mark chapter 14, that he is good, that he is the true treasure, that he is better than any possession, any amount of money that we can spend or any amount of money that we can save. He is worthy of our trust. Let us seek him. Let us seek him and remember him and love him and know that he has the power and the desire to set us free. Because we serve a king that loves to set the captives free. Family, let, us, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for being what we truly need. For being the, the savior that even though you were, wo- you were worthy of being treasured, you allowed yourself to be betrayed so that we might be set free. So that we might no longer be slaves to sin, but instead be slaves to righteousness. Instead be your servants, be those who are free to truly follow you as we were created and as we were designed to do. Father, make us like the woman in this story in Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark 14, who brings her possessions to you open-handed, even if it's very costly, and says, "I just want to use this as a means of worshiping you, because it belongs to you anyway." Make us a people who see all of our possessions as a means of worshiping you, not as a means of replacing you, as a means of worshiping you, as a way of us expressing that we actually trust you to give us comfort, as a way of expressing that we actually trust you to provide for us and protect us. Father, if we're honest, I believe we must admit that we have been enslaved because of the love of money. That we've been shackled into doing things that deep down we know aren't what's best or what's most glorious and what glorifies you the most. Father, continue to set us free as we seek you. Help us to keep our eyes on you, to see and seek you as we should. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen.